I'm back to being wired up again. I thought we were going to have a great summer, Carlene being in the class with us, but uh, this Sunday and next Sunday she'll be playing the organ at First Presbyterian in Kingsport, and then the following Sunday she'll be playing at both services here at Munsey. So uh, I'm having to tape it and let her get her Sunday school lesson between Sundays. I don't know why you wanted to cover up that great source of information that I put on the board to you. <laughs> I didn't know it was half open, so I didn't know if you were just half, yeah. on, half sincere with it or not. Yeah. <laughs> in, in the Pulitzer Prize play Green Pastures, Gabriel looks down on earth and he turns to the Lord and says, it looks like everything that was nailed down has come busted loose. Well, those of us who love Munsey sometimes get the feeling that everything that's been nailed down has become busted loose with all the things that are changing and happening. Someone very judiciously has said, now let's stop for a minute. Let's see where we've been. Let's see where we are. And let's see where we need to go. Now, when I was pastor over at First Church, Dick Looney was pastor here at Munsey, and you brought in Lyle Scheller to look at Munsey to say, this is what this church needs to do in order to fulfill itself. Lyle Scheller has no peer in church growth and development. Munsey's a great church. And I speak out of 40 years of serving churches and knowing churches. Munsey is a great church and there is no part of Munsey that is more a part of what the church ought to be in principle, in attitude, in Christian living, in commitment than this class. This class is the nucleus of what this church can be. Now I'm taking time to say this because there are going to be times when we're invited to come together and talk about it. Jim and I, Jim uh, Pal and I were talking just a few minutes ago thinking it would be judicious for us to take a Sunday school hour once these hearings are finished and bring some loose ends together and say, now, here's where we are and here's where we need to be and here's how we can accomplish it. This can be one of Munsey's greatest hours, but it takes all of us in order to accomplish it. So I hope that you will participate whenever you have an opportunity and then come together and let's really move ahead. Now I've had my sermon for the day, let's get down to our Sunday school lesson. <laughs> there was a, a young man who after a few years of trying one thing and then another just felt that he didn't have his thumb on the pulse of what living ought to be. He was unhappy, he was unsuccessful. He looked at those with whom he had grown up and had been educated and that they were getting along so well. Most of them more prosperous than he, more beautiful homes, nicer cars, finer professions. He struggled with who he was and what he could do with his life. And he kept 
praying that somehow he could get a hold of great wealth so that he could bridge all of these separations between who he was and what he wanted to be and what he wanted to become. And one night he had a dream and in that dream he met a man walking out in the forest at dawn and he approached the man and said to him you have something for me and the old man reached into his cloak and pulled out a beautiful ruby and handed it to him he was so excited when he awoke the next morning he knew it was a dream but what if it could possibly be a vision of what could be a reality so he got up and Following the dream, he went out into the forest at a particular place at dawn. And sure enough, here was an old man out walking at dawn, enjoying the breaking of the day, the singing of the birds, enjoying life fully. And he came up to the man and told him what he had dreamed. And the man reached down in his coat and pulled out a ruby so large that he couldn't close his fingers around it and handed it to the young man and smiled. The young man was so excited, he rushed back home. He couldn't turn loose of that beautiful ruby. He held on to it all day long. He would hold it up, and the sun rays would cause flashes of red light to emerge from that beautiful ruby. He held it all day long and dreamed of what this would bring to him. When night came, he put it under his pillow for fear that a robber would break into his home during the night and take it away. And then he awoke the next morning and he took out the ruby and held it in his hand for a long time. And then he walked back out into the forest where he had met the old man. And they encountered one another and the young man pulled the ruby out of his pocket and handed it to the old man and said, here, take it back. What I want is what you have that allowed you to give me this ruby. Well, the story ends there but not for us this morning because I can tell you what it is that the old man had that the young man didn't which would have changed his life and it's in the scripture that is a part of our lesson for today the third proverb in which it says wisdom is far above silver gold or precious gems Wisdom is the greatest possession that a person can have. When Solomon became king of Israel, his father David had built the kingdom, brought all of the provinces together. There was peace over all the land. It was a paradise, a time that Jews now look back upon, saying this is the greatest moment of our history with the desire to recreate David upon the throne and this great moment of time but Solomon was to take the seat of his father David upon the throne God said to Solomon tell me your greatest desire and I will grant it Solomon who could have chosen from anything in the world asked for this give me wisdom God gave Solomon wisdom we know Solomon as the wisest man who ever lived. But God said to Solomon, because you have been so judicious in what you have asked, I will give you riches in addition. 
I will give you the minor things that you might have asked for. I will fill your life with good things. Solomon has gone down in history as one of the most rewarded men of all history. In fact, Jesus talked about Solomon when he talked about values and he said, Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Solomon asked for wisdom. But there's a lesson to be learned from Solomon as well. Wisdom does not make you perfect. Wisdom does not make you ethically above temptation. Solomon blew it. He built the magnificent temple that would bear his name, Solomon's Temple, one of the most beautiful buildings of all the East at that time. But before he built the temple, he built him a palace, far more spectacular than the temple itself. And then he filled that palace with wives from all over the area, not just from Judea, but from other nations as well, brought in wives and filled his palace with wives. And many of them, most of them, brought with them the gods that they worshipped in the lands that they had left. And so Solomon built temples for them to worship their gods in the land in which God had said, I am to be the only God. Now in order to build such a magnificent palace, in order to keep up so many wives, in order to have such a magnificent palace, Solomon needed money. What did he do? He taxed the people. Taxed them so deeply until finally they had nothing left. They were all living almost at the point of poverty. And when that wasn't enough, he conscripted the people to become laborers for the government in order to carry it on. And as a result, when Solomon died, the nation collapsed. <clears throat> and it would never regain its grandeur. So wisdom is not a cure-all. Wisdom is that which enables you, but you have to be able to use it the right way in order for it to be a power that God meant for it to be. Wisdom is to be desired above all riches, silver, gold, fine jewels. Nothing says the writer of Proverbs is greater than wisdom. Job asked when Job, the entire book of Job is an encounter of Job with God, trying to delve from God some of the secrets that, lay, that lie behind all of humanity and life itself. And one of the questions that Job asks is, what is wisdom? Now, you give me your definition of wisdom. What is wisdom? I'll prime you with this observation on my part. Most attributes that we possess occur on a single stem. Knowledge, reason, these other many attributes stand alone, but wisdom is a composite of many things. It is not a word an entity within itself, it grows and builds from the bringing together of many things. But what is wisdom? You didn't know I was going to give you a test this morning, did you? <laughs> See, while I was gone, I decided I'm just going to be a, 
a mean old professor like some of you in here. Well, I've got my own definition of what wisdom is. It is the understanding and application of your knowledge beyond simple reason and logic. Now that's as close as I can come in encompassing what wisdom is. But I do know from whence wisdom comes. And that's what we really want to know. That's really the most important aspect of wisdom. How do we become wise? How do we assess the qualities that come with wisdom? Well, I looked through the entire Old Testament to see what the Old Testament had to say about wisdom. And I found that there were 53 references to wisdom in Proverbs alone. And there were 23 references to wisdom in Job alone, who asked the question, what is wisdom? And so I went to every one of those sources in Proverbs to see what it said about wisdom. In the ninth chapter of Proverbs, verse 1, the writer says, Wisdom has built her house, and she has built it on seven pillars. So, the one who speaks so about wisdom and desires wisdom so greatly identifies the fact that wisdom builds her house on seven pillars. I was determined for you that I would ferret out those seven pillars so that you might see from whence wisdom comes. But Proverbs, or rather Proverbs let me down. He didn't articulate it that clearly so that we might see what was in his mind. But I did find four. Prudence, humility, discretion, and insight. Now, I had Brad write those on the board this morning because I wanted you to get a, a visual comprehension. You know, we can just speak a word and go on, and it kind of fades out as the next one comes into view. But if you're serious about knowing where wisdom comes from, there it is visually before you. Prudence, humility, discretion, and insight. But that's only four. What about the other three? Well, I decided that I was as wise as a writer of Proverbs. <laughs> so I contributed the next three. And they are knowledge, reason, and openness. If we possess these seven qualities, they come together to make us wise persons. And our wisdom depends upon the extent to which these seven become a part of us. And if we possess them all, then we can stand alongside Solomon as wise to the extent to which one can become wise. Now, do we understand what these are? Prudence. Give me a good definition of prudence. I don't know what prudence is, but you've left off age. <laughs> I wish that age did do it because I would qualify more than anybody in here. <laughs> but you're right, experience certainly brings about a situation where one becomes much wiser. 
Um, I have repeated this before, but in that context, Harry Emerson Fosdick, one of the greatest preachers of this century, said, when I was 70, I couldn't believe the things that I was preaching at the age of 28, as he grew wiser over the years. Prudence is the application of knowledge judiciously. It's not enough simply to know, but it is to be judicious in the application of that knowledge. Humility. Who can give us a good meaning for humility? Jesus talks as much about humility as any other characteristic. The Bible repeatedly pleads that we become humble. Now, it's not the sort of thing we sing about in that hymn, For Such a Worm as I. I, I refuse to sing that when we sing that hymn. I say, For Such a One as I, because I'm not a worm, and I'm not fond of worms. Humility is not debasing yourself. Humility is realizing that in spite of what my properties are, I'm not really responsible for them and cannot really take credit for them. It is out of the goodness of God and others. And so therefore, I am not grandiose in my feelings about who I am and what I possess. That's humility. Discretion. Tell me what a good meaning for discretion is. Discreet, that's right. Careful application of your understanding of things and circumstances so that it be properly done. One of the first things that I learned in becoming a minister was when I was becoming a full member of the conference and uh, we were going through a period of instruction. Clyde Watkins, whom many of you know from being the director of the Interboard Council at that time, one of the great men of our church, said to us on that occasion, it is important to be willing to lose battles in order to win the war. If you try to win all your battles, you'll probably lose the war. But if you're willing to lose some battles, you can win the war. And the other thing that he said was, and this has stayed with me more than anything else, don't ever let a person lose face. If you do, there'll never be forgiveness. You'll have an enemy for life. Those are two strong, valid principles on which one must build one's life. And that is discretion. Insight is just simply seeing beyond what normally appears on the surface. Boy, I wish I had another hour. Look, I just about run out of time and I haven't gotten to mine yet. <laughs> <laughs> Knowledge. Knowledge. Don't run, I'm talking about knowledge. <laughs> we know if we don't go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding, of course. No one appreciates more greatly than I intellectual achievement. Education. I'm for education more than anybody I know. I said to my three older children and say it to Brad now, 
Whatever you choose to do with your life that will bring you fulfillment, that's what I want you to do. It doesn't matter how menial it may be or how impressive it may be. If it's the thing that you want to do that will bring you meaning in life, if it's to lay bricks or to become a professional person, that part isn't it is immaterial. It's whatever you want to do. But I want you to be educated in what you do. If you are a bricklayer, I want you to be the best educated person that you can be. Or if you are a member of a profession, I want you to be the best trained and educated person you can be. There's nothing that will compare to knowledge. When you open the door of knowledge, the world belongs to you. You can go into the library and every fact known to man can be revealed to you. You know where to go, you know how to assimilate it. You just can't know enough. And the more you know, the more aware you become of how little you know. But knowledge is so important. And when I heard someone talking about the crisis in Tennessee say, why should I, who have no children, pay to educate somebody else's child in the public school? And chills ran all over me. There's nothing more important than the schools and good education and an opportunity for education. Knowledge has to be there because it is out of the facts that we know that we can operate. If we are ignorant of the facts, we can't be wise. And if we are ignorant of facts, we can't be of the best use to the needs of others. Reason? Well, that's just pure, simple logic. I know some people who are so educated but don't have one ounce of common sense. <laughs> Takes both. Takes good old common sense as well as intellect in order to operate with your capacities for knowledge and learning. And then the last one is an open mind. You stop growing when you close your mind. You know the old adage, my mind is made up, don't confuse me with facts. <laughs> Too many of us live by that standard. My mind's made up and I don't want to hear your argument. That's the way a lot of people in Tennessee voted. That's exactly right. <laughs> now, I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't agree with her. You didn't hear me agree with her, did you? I agree with her. <laughs> well... I agree too because of the, of the, not because of the political positions that were being taken, I'm not in arguing with that, but the fact that there was such a limited understanding of what the real problem is and how to solve it. And when you come to the point of saying, don't tax me anymore because I'm not going to give anymore, if everything crumbles, that's not the way we live as a society and a civilization. I don't know what the answers are. If I had, I would have run for one of these offices. <laughs> but I do know that we can't close our minds to alternatives and just simply say, well, we're not going to do any more in providing resources to solve the problems. Well, now, I got political here, and I have such precious little time to talk anyway. But we have to have an open mind to look at all possibilities to look at all alternatives before making a decision. I have my own theology that I live by and it has come out of a lifetime of searching and seeking, eliminating and adding. 
I, like Harry Emerson Fosdick, did not have the same theology with which I started out in the beginning. It is a growing thing because we are open to other possibilities. And so we need to be open-minded always when anyone suggests something different from our own position, we don't need to shut it off and say, you're wrong and I'm right. Balance it with what you believe. And it just could be wrong that, could be that we are wrong and that person is right. I'm humble enough to say that I don't possess the answers to all the problems that we face in life. And as those problems surface, I want to look at alternatives and not just simply say, well, I made my mind up on that and that's it and close the door and go on. To me, an open mind is the most important thing in your progress toward wisdom because if you close your mind, prudence, humility, discretion, insight, knowledge, and reason will count for nothing because you have imprisoned yourself with a preconceived notion that may be filled with errors. And few of us have positions that are without error. So, an open mind is so important. But while we have an open mind, we have, must live by our convictions. Since 7-11, we have tried to embrace the Muslim faith more completely, be open toward the Muslim faith, and I commend us all for that. We as Christians don't possess all knowledge and all facts. We can learn from others. My alma mater, Emory University, was founded by the Methodist Church, particularly in the beginning to train Methodist ministers on the campus of Atlanta, in Atlanta. Now there's a school for Muslim studies, there's a school for Buddhist studies, and the student body has always numbered more Jews than any other group. I applaud that Christianity stands above all this because we have Christ and Christ is what makes Christianity and let's don't say that the Muslim faith is as good as Christianity nor say that the Jewish faith is as good as Christianity if Christianity is built upon Christ and they do not have Christ but that doesn't mean that we cut them off we support them in their beliefs we affirm them in their beliefs while all the time holding on to our own with pride and not apology. Now these last few minutes weren't intended and it's a shame I didn't stop when I ran out of time. <laughs> but you have an open mind. <clears throat> so, the writer of Proverbs says, the greatest possession that we can possess is wisdom and it will serve us far better than silver or gold are great riches. The house of wisdom is built upon seven pillars, those attributes toward which we ought to work judiciously in order to apply our lives wisely. <clears throat>